0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lessons in Product Management. I'm your host, John Fontenot, and today we have Dan Belkowski joining us to talk about all things pricing. Dan is a pricing expert, and I'm super excited for you to hear what he has to say. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: John, thank you for having me so much on your podcast. I'm excited to, for the conversation today.
0: I'm excited too, man. But uh, before we dive in, because my, my gut says let's dive in, let's get to it, but I, I want to give the listeners an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. Your background and, and what you're up to today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've spent my entire 20 year career in software. I started out more on the value creation side than the value capture side. So it's one way we think about you know product development versus the monetization world. So it's first as an engineer and then engineering management. But ultimately I became fascinated by how the products we built created value for customers and turned into dollars and cents for the business. And this interest led me to pursue my MBA. I didn't realize it then, but I was quite lucky with my MBA. Most schools, I didn't find out till later, don't have... First of all, the school I went to had a very strong uh, and is known for its marketing program, but most programs don't even have pricing courses. And so got my theoretical grounding in pricing there. And then during that internship during my MBA program. end up working for a very successful Silicon Valley startup and helped solve some pricing challenges that they were having. I'm happy to dive into that. The TLDR of that is don't go freemium. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, after Kellogg, I spent much more time getting deep into value creation side of the business as a product manager. And at those The companies I was at, we acquired a lot of other companies and products. And so I gained tremendous experience from seeing all the mistakes that those acquired companies made in their pricing and product strategies. And now I have the privilege of helping founders, CEOs, and their teams build sustainable businesses, helping them get their products in the hands of as many customers as possible, and hopefully making money along the way.
0: This is why we booked an hour, because I feel like there's so much we could dive into. But but before we do, I just want to call out that I find it super fascinating that you started out as an engineer. Cause a a lot of engineers turn into product managers. Like that feels like a pretty common path, but to go all the way from engineer to like, like you mentioned value creation to value capture and then into the pricing side, which I would typically think falls into like the product marketing kind of go to market function. Every company's different, but like that feels like a pretty, pretty big spectrum swing. Um, what's, what's the TLDR story of of that? Like what, what got you interested in making that shift over?
1: Well, the you know I think the MBA program in general is you know, it, not school specific, but is a is a good way to sort of explore what other alternatives are available to you. And so I remember mm-hmm. when I was first thinking about applying for a business school, it was like, well, you know, I've been in the engineering role for you know, how many years now? And that decision was made by a 16 or 17-year-old when he decided what major he wanted <laughs> to have in college. And so let me go see what else is, is available. And in in a business school program, and a two-year MBA program is a, is a pretty society-condoned way of going through that c- career exploration and be like, okay, do I want to go into investment banking or into consulting or into switching functions within my industry or switching industries? So I was able to dabble around with a lot of that and then you know as you mentioned the I do believe product marketing generally should own pricing I don't, we may talk about this later but that internship I had was technically a product marketing internship and it it was sort of a roll your own so we got some amount of dabbling in the product management world as well but that's one of the reasons why I got the freemium project kind of put on my plate uh, and then so I just had those fundamental Backgrounds in marketing from my program, and then, yeah, as you know, I grew in my product management career. There was a lot of these pricing projects, et cetera, that would come up, and, and product marketing at the company. I started with out of school, they technically own pricing, but a lot of them had never got any training in pricing, and so they were like, I, you know, I believe product management, product marketing should be joined at the hip. They're they're a dynamic duo. They work to, should be working together to make the product successful. There's not one that's ahead of the other necessarily, but so my counterpart would be like, well, I don't I don't know what to do here. Do you know what to do here? I'd be like, well. I think so let me try and i made a bunch of mistakes trying to apply uh, theory where it wasn't suited and make getting those bruises along the way and so it just was a natural evolution uh, as far as that goes
0: that's pretty cool uh, i always love hearing people's career journeys and how like the the winding paths of our lives take us to where we ultimately are it's, it's just fascinating so thanks for sharing of course all right so dive diving into pricing so we We got kind of a glimpse into your your start into the pricing world from engineer to engineering manager to to business school to product management to product marketing and and that kind of led into this this whole new realm of like developing this this expertise that is that is pretty rare to your point like there's not a lot of companies that have people in-house that are good at pricing uh, and often go to consultants because not a lot of companies just build that muscle internally so I know there's a couple of things that we want to talk about that we that we're probably going to touch on later that you mentioned earlier. But just to, to lay the foundation, what what do most companies get wrong about pricing? Like what is what are some of the big myths or some of the big pitfalls that, that you see typically happen when, when you step in to help?
1: Oh man, there's too many to mention, but uh, I think the <laughs> one of the most common I see is when it comes, especially to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. There's too many companies that come to me and they're focused purely on what I would term the price level. So is you know this product is twenty dollars a seat. It's hundred dollars a seat. It's 1995. You know, should we use charm pricing ended 95 cents or 99 cents? It's like, look, those are fun questions, but you're asked, you're starting in the totally wrong place. Like eventually we'll have to answer that question, but it's the least impactful in my opinion. And it's the easiest thing to change. And so I really think when it comes to pricing, you spend most of your time on what the price tag goes on and little time on what number goes on the actual price tag.
0: So f- figuring out what you, what you put that price on, are you, are you inferring like, what are you basing that pricing on in terms of like a value metric or like what, what I guess, go, can we go a level deeper there on, on what you meant by that?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of two components there. So it's it again, not what you charge, but who and how you charge. So we could take each of those sort of separately. And this might uh, lead us into some of the other topics that we want to discuss, but the, who we charge is this idea that we have to understand at a core level, our customer segmentation. Not all customers are equal. They will value the product differently depending upon their context, their available competitive alternatives, uh, their their needs, motivations, etc. And so understanding that at a fundamental level is critically important. When we think about the how we charge, oftentimes in this conversation, we'll talk a lot about pricing. But when I say pricing, I mean pricing and packaging. It gets a little unwieldy to constantly say pricing and packaging. So we might just say pricing. But the packaging is really the how you charge. And I'm happy to break it down more, but packaging in the SaaS world really has four separate components. Of one is a the price metric. So it's the unit of value you charge for, your offer bundles or configurations. That's what sets of features go in which offer. Uh, often in SaaS can be something along the good, better, best, or, or more modular design or you know, base plus you know add-ons, depending upon what's most suitable for your market. could be your price model. So is it a subscription? Is it a perpetual subscription? perpetual license? Is it a utility billing, pay-as-you-go type models at dynamic pricing like Google and Facebook have for their ad inventory? And then finally, your sets of price fences. Uh, these are how do we charge two different customers, two different prices based upon some other criteria, usually identity, time, or volume. And so those components are critically important because they help convey your value story. Like if you're doing pricing right, you're understanding your value at a, at a deep level. And then those pieces of packaging all support the story that you're telling to your customers of how you're going to help them do your job, how the pricing scales with it. It allows you to capture value fairly you know, as the account size changes, as the, as the customer is getting more value. So it makes the entire go-to-market machine much more efficient.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on a couple of things that I think are highly correlated of segmentation and value right and i can't tell you how many times i've had in my product career where it's like hey we're gonna go after let's just say small businesses and it's like okay give me more and they're like more what i'm like what what, what do you how do you define small business they're like oh um 50 to 100 employees i'm like is it 50 or is it 100 <laughs> there's so many there's so many implications to the, the nuances and differences of what segment of customer you're going after that impacts probably what, what the value is but also like what is the product that we build to support that segment because if i'm building for let's say the healthcare vertical versus a construction vertical those are probably two wildly different products um, at least enough to make a, a significant difference
1: no absolutely and i think what you're, you're hinting at there is there's really a couple of different ways to think about segmentation. So at, at the end of any segmentation exercise, really what you need to understand is two different things, who customers are and what do they want. Yep. And then there's two ways to get at that based upon which of those do we start with? Because at the end, we need both. So what most people do is they start with who customers are. And that is what you your example just outlined, which is like we're gonna do a firmographic based segmentation based upon employee size or revenue or industry vertical. I am actually in favor of that to an extent because what I don't want our wonderful product manager leaders who are listening to get themselves into which I've got myself into before is you go do a beautiful value based segmentation and you come back to the to the executive room and they don't even believe in the concept of of customer segments. So, I think a firmographic segmentation is a really nice low cost low effort way to help executives understand that the market is not all the same and that they have different situations contexts, needs uh, but you don't have to go do all the dirty work the problem with a firmographic or a, uh, what they call an a priori segmentation a priori is a fat and fa- fancy latin term uh, meaning sort of what comes before because the a priori part of it is that you didn't devise there's already a bunch of data out there you know whether it's the CIA factbook on demographics or you know other uh, Gartner reports right that have have broken up by by industry classifications all the but that doesn't necessarily determine the buying criteria that customers have that dictate their purchase decisions and so you can be led down a false path by getting lulled into this well like smb customers are different than mid-market which are different than enterprise maybe but maybe not like uh so for example i had a client who they were a incubator company inside of a of a giant like global 100 firm right now they acted like a seed st- seed or series a startup because that you know the, the business leader in that organization had needs of like, hey this is what we're doing to to iterate and you know i am tr- trying to figure out what the value propositions are or what willingness to pay is it had no market data. the product was in beta, right it had no transactions. So you know if I made that mistake, it was like to came at them It was like, oh well, you're an enterprise company. this is where we're going to start our our pricing engagement with all this assumption that there's this giant team and all this data well, just be entirely incorrect. Like they were in a different space, but they were inside of a, of a much larger company. So we can get really lulled down that path. So I mentioned the a priori segmentation. I, The better way to do it is to start with what customers want. And that is ultimately, we call it a post hoc segmentation or, or a value-based segmentation. Because if we do that, we really get to the bottom of why it is that customers buy. And for pricing, it gives us, why they value our product a certain amount, which we need to make sure in this, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it in more depth in this conversation, but ultimately the pricing that we put in place, you know, the, the value story we're telling with our packaging and the price level has to align with that value. And so if we don't make do that up front, I've gone the other direction where you don't, you leave, you leave segmentation to the very end. And what ends up happening invariably is you end up in an executive room where you're saying, this is what our pricing and packaging should be. And then it's everyone's turn to throw rocks and they're not throwing literal rocks. What they're throwing is the rock with a name of a specific customer that they have in mind of why that plan won't work for them because you didn't do the work up front to help the group define what the segments were that we were going to define packages for. So you end up having to do the work all over again. (laughs) This is a sad fact of it.
0: (laughs) No, totally. It's interesting because I've seen it too, where it's like, Oh, well, these companies have this much revenue or this many employees or, you know, they they have this many customers if they're like a, an enterprise company that, that they're serving other businesses. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, but, but to your point, the, the needs of those companies, you, you could have a company that serves, you know, 30,000 small businesses and another company that serves 10 million and they have the exact same needs. And then you could have two that have the same customer profile and makeup that have wildly different needs. But to your point, I, I agree, like what, the, what really matters is what like, what value do they place on, not, not that's the inverse, what, what value should your product produce based on the pains or needs that they have as a business?
1: Yeah, their context is decisive, right? So, yeah. you know, you could have people in very what ostensibly from the outside look like very similar circumstances, but you know, you talk about their their specific context, it looks very different. And um, you do need to eventually, you know, like I said, you at the end of a segmentation exercise, you do need to have both because in order to make a segmentation actionable, right? We do need to try to profile uh the value-based segmentation with ways that allow our go-to-market teams to to reach those customers, right? So at the end of it, right, we, we, we may attach firmographics uh, or or geographies or you know employee uh, size or revenue uh, count to those value-based segmentations, but we're going to have a much more nuanced view than like, oh, well, this is how Gartner divides our industry. So of course, this is the way that our customers want to buy our specific product. Uh, it tends to not work exactly that way.
0: Totally. And and not, not to go down this rabbit hole, but I think competitive analysis works the same way too, Where people who you view as your competitors might not, might not, might not actually be part of that decision calculus of your potential customers because of the way that like you position your product and um, based on like the contextual need of of the business, they they may (laughs) see something else completely. Like the common expression is like everyone competes with a spreadsheet. (laughs) Um, it, It might, it might be something like that where there's, things that don't seem to be in the same competitive landscape, but they are part of the potential customer's decision calculus nonetheless.
1: Yeah, I love that. I use that example a lot myself. The other one I'll use is that uh, Facebook competes with cigarettes where (laughs) I'm, I'm sitting at my computer or maybe if I was a smoker, I was sitting at my computer and I don't like whatever it is I'm working on, and it's I'm getting this itch to do something, and so I could either open up another Chrome tab and go check Facebook or Instagram or TikTok for 15 minutes, or I go outside and smoke a cigarette. Either way, as a as the end user, I'm scratching that same fundamental uh, social uh, or emotional itch that I have, but with two very different products. And so this sort of leads into a conversation, you know, the ultimate. Sort of answer I end up getting is like, well, how do you sort of go about a value based segmentation? Uh, I'm a big fan of the jobs to be done approach. So, uh, jobs to be done, you know, if we use, understand sort of customer's context, the, you know, because the customer's context is decisive, not necessarily the person, right? And I think this is really the beauty of a, I teach product strategy for uh, Kellogg now for their executive ed- education program. And we, I have to do a lot of uh, exorcism around what is the difference between a job story and a user story? Because most people who have been trained only in a scrum, like this is how we write user stories are completely captivated by starting with a, with a persona, but persona tends to not be decisive for design. It tends to be more the the context. Um, Now, if you, if you do it right, you could eventually... Generate a a persona based upon those job stories. If you if you go through the full process, but if you just start with you know Sally entrepreneur, uh, you know Betty mid market, uh, Emily enterprise, it's like you're starting with something that is I guess it fulfills the Scrum criteria, but it doesn't really help your team actually make progress in building a better product for their for their market.
0: It's completely arbitrary. Correct. Yeah. So. I guess double clicking on on before we get into value based value based pricing, um, is, is there anything you would add to like further defining value outside of um, the like the, the user's context? Yeah. So I use value,
1: uh, I use two different frameworks to think about value. So the first is jobs to be done. And I really like sort of Tony Ulwick's uh, methodology where he thinks in terms of, you know, job story really helps you understand right, the company, the customer's context, their motivation and the outcome that they're trying to achieve. And so we think in terms of of raw value, there's really three types of, of value and there's, which maps to the three types of, of job stories. And so those are, you know, a functional job, a functional or sometimes called an economic job, right? So this is, I want to help, uh, you know, increase revenue, decrease costs, decrease operating capital, increase optionality, decrease risk, um, better, faster, cheaper, right? Those are economic or functional outcomes. There's emotional outcomes. So this is making someone, you know, have less anxiety or less stress or feel higher status, uh, you know, feel like they have access to expertise, right? Um, and then there's the idea of social jobs. So one of the ideas is that you know, humans are not purely you know out for ourselves. We are we're pro social. And so, things like if you're in a nonprofit or, or a government organization, you might be fighting for uh, climate policy or equal rights or access to education or healthcare or whatever it might be, right? So these are these are benefits or outcomes that you, know, you benefit from, but it's because they're pro-social and not directly you know related to to you. So we think about that as a fundamental level, right? Jobs to be done helps us understand, and I, and I call those generally value drivers: the the economic, functional, the emotional, social. Those are our three core. Quarter- core value drivers. And then what I I layer on there is a, another framework that comes from a gentleman who wrote a seminal book on pricing called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. His name is uh, J- Tom Nagel. And he really, it's it's a it's a really dense read, but if you're at all interested in the space, it's sort of a, a sort of a must read for anyone who's going to go into the pricing world because um, he really did a lot to sort of solidify a lot of these uh, concepts. And he has this concept of the value cascade. The value cascade, you know, if we think about, uh, is is not a visual medium, so I'll try to describe to your listeners as best as I can. If I just think about a, a a cascading bar chart, you know, so the first, the highest bar on the left would be what we call use value. So use value would be the sum of all benefits that a customer would get from using your product, and uh, th- that would be contained in the economic, emotional, and, and social uh, value that we described before. So that's that's useful, um, but it, for pricing exercise, it's it's pretty much irrelevant because as soon as we get into uh, we we get into this realm of competition and competitive alternatives. This is another reason, kind of on the jobs to be done front. I really like it because it does allow you to think in terms of indirect competitors, the spreadsheet or, or, or Facebook uh, versus cigarette uh, example so let me, let me give you an example of, of how difference between use value and exchange value comes up. So uh, what I want to under- try to understand is that the customer is exists exists in a market and there are other ways for them to get that job done. And those jobs already have prices. Okay. So let's use the, let's use the pure example of use value. So uh, Gilligan's Island Uh, Gilligan and his crew are trapped on a desert island. Uh, Mr. Howell was the millionaire and that was back in the 60s. So probably adjusted for inflation. He's probably a billionaire in today's terms. So basically Elon Musk is trapped on a desert island, right? And a boat shows up finally after years. Mr. Howell slash Elon should be willing to pay every penny he is worth to get off that island because his money is effectively useless on the island. And so... He's he's a his his value should be every every penny you could get, and probably all the money he could borrow as well. Just get get me off this island. Now, what happens when Ship Captain B shows up? Now Ship Captain B says, Well, Mr. Howell, I mean, I know you're about to give write him a check for a billion dollars to get off this island, but I'll give it to you for a million. So now the use value didn't change. He still just has the benefit of getting off the island, but now we're in a competitive environment. And so now the ship captains are in this dynamic where, okay, one's going to charge me a billion. The other one's going to charge me a million. Well, it's the same trip home. So the market price is now a million. Now the other ship captain has to be like, well, actually my cabin is bigger. It has better amenities. I'll, I'll make you cocktails as we cruise along. you know. And so this is what we call as differentiated value. So the idea here is that, you know, you might be positively or negatively differentiated from your, uh, competitors, but you have to understand for the purpose of, uh, you know, our pricing exercise, you know, what is your customer comparing you to what is your next best competitive alternative? And then how are you positively or negatively differentiated from them? And then, and there's a whole, there's a whole science behind, you know, how to go through that type of exercise. And then the final part of the value cascade is perceived value. So the context the customers in and your ability to communicate the value of your product influences the value of your product in the customer's mind. Only perceived value creates willingness to pay. So although you might be able to convince your or or run a spreadsheet that says, Hey, Mr. Customer, our enterprise CRM system will help you and your sales team generate an incremental million dollars a year in revenue. That number only matters as much as it matters to the person you're talking to, and so now it enters into the psychology and information of the prospect. Because customers or prospects may be uninformed about the relevant alternatives or differentiating benefits or attributes of 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 your either your product or the alternatives in the space. Right? Like we we sit as product managers as pricing leaders in our market in our product day in day out doing competitive research. We know you know, there's 250 features our competitor has, and we know when they ship 251, right? Because we're on that. Your prospect has no, is not nearly that deep, right? They got tasked by their manager to go look at some CR, Hey, we need a CRM system. So they went to G2 crowd or trust radius or whoever and they've like pulled, you know, a list of the t- top five. And then they went and asked five friends at other companies, Hey, who do you guys use? What do you like? What do you don't? And now they're on a call with your salesperson and now they're having a pricing conversation, right? That's the extent of their research, right? And they obviously, you know, different uh, elements of a buying center might have you know more or less uh, information, but you know, your ability to justify your value to them, right, is really what dictates the final value. And then that is what they will base their willingness to pay on. So that's that's sort of, I'll stop there, see where you want to dig into, but that's kind of how I think about value in general.
0: No, willingness to pay is definitely where I want it to go. So um, va- values based on uh, the context that the, that the user or the buyer is in, uh, the pain that is being uh, that, that is generating the push to find a solution or a uh, a way to, to do that job. But there's also other ways that they're probably trying to do that job today. And so there's, um, there's a competitive market that is driving what that reasonable cost should be and creating kind of that, I guess that um, heuristic in, in the, the buyer's mind of what what is reasonable to pay um, for this solution, right? So like, like your example of Gilligan's Island, if there's just one ship captain, it's a billion because you want to get off the island. <laughs> but as soon as you have two ship captains and the other one sets the value at a million, um, it, it kind of shifts the mental model of the market and what we should pay, unless you can convince that there's a valid reason why they should pay more for it. So did I did I track that well?
1: That is a that is a beautiful summary. Okay. Well done,
0: thank you. Um, so as as you're understanding the value and the competitive alternatives, even if they're indirect competitors, like I, I, it feels like you could get a sense of that willingness to pay, or at least the temptation would be to say I can get a sense of the willingness to pay without having to talk to customers. Well what would you what would you say to that, and what potential caution would you uh would you throw to to those who think that way
1: oh man uh, so if there's one thing i will tell any product manager or pricing person is you have to talk to your customers there's no like you are not doing your job as you know it's like it be like talking to a painter who never picks up a paintbrush i don't know what they're doing with their time but you're not a painter like you call yourself a painter but you're not a painter uh Maybe it would be no offense, Banksy. In this conversation, he he actually qualify. He's an artist, right? He's not a painter. I don't know if anyone would call that. But um, you ultimately, you do have to talk to your customers. Um, Man, there's so many directions I could go with that question. Is there? I guess what would be what would be helpful?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two directions I could take it. There's an existing market, meaning there's multiple players who are solving a problem in a market, um, that, that have gotten adoption to some degree within that market. And you're trying to enter that market, uh, and compete within it. So that's one direction we could go, or it could be kind of the blue ocean scenario where there may be one other, other alternative, but there's really not much else out there. And so there's not a real good baseline or benchmark to set your pricing at, uh, it, it feels like the the second scenario is kind of an obvious you should talk to your customers but it feels like the temptation to just look at the market and price accordingly or price similarly is more of a temptation in kind of an established market.
1: Got it. So yeah, I think the, the the first part you said about a blue ocean uh I mean I know that book did really well and got a bunch of marketers really excited but I I kind of think it's a, <laughs> a it's a a false hope it's a mirage uh, especially in this environment if you're a software developer the ability to spin up a company spin up a product has never been cheaper and it's getting insanely better all the time between all the you know ai tools now i'm seeing are are generating wireframes all the way to code uh in uh, you know you know, got all these no code solutions so, you know, while you might have been in a possible blue ocean 15 years ago in SaaS, I do not think that that's even a viable uh, option today. And and I will say even if that's the case, your next best competitive alternative is the customer status quo. It's what they're doing today. We we, we talked about this at the beginning. Is it email and spreadsheets? Okay, well then what is your differentiating value? versus that solution. If they've got Johnny, the intern who's updating a spreadsheet, okay, well, sometimes Johnny's out sick. Sometimes Johnny makes a mistake. Sometimes Johnny puts the spreadsheet on a shared public drive and exposes all of our company secrets to, you know, the entire world, right? That's a security risk. Right? So, you know, what is your you know, Johnny's like generally uh effective, but you know, there's there's going to be better things to do when you once you make software that's that's automated, right? So it's about understanding that. On the other side, I think this kind of leads us into the conversation of, you know, if the, if you're in a heavily contested market, I'm selling CRMs. Why don't I just go look at what Salesforce has and then look at, I don't know who else is in that market, but like look at Salesforce and I'll just discount, you know, 20% to whatever Salesforce has. Um, and I would be lying if that's not what a lot of companies do. And I don't think that's a good thing to do what I think brings into this discussion is there's this concept of pricing orientations that are, I think is quite helpful to understand. And the way I think about pricing orientations is they're a, a ladder of pricing competency, really an orientation as I think about is how is pricing done around here? What are the things that we really take into consideration or account as we're making our pricing and packaging for our products? So the, they, they go by the three C's of pricing because marketing, we love our, our handy acronyms. So it's cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, and customer value-based pricing. Last one, often just called value-based pricing. But again, we love our three C's. So we, lose, we have two C's and V is not quite as catchy. So each of those is, it's a ladder. It's not, oh, we just get to jump. I think that the biggest, one of the biggest disconnects I get around value-based pricing is you know, I'll have companies come and be like, oh, we want to do value-based pricing. And I'll be like, great, what are your cost of goods sold? What are your you know, marginal costs for serving a customer? And they're like, well, we don't have that. I'm like, well, you don't get to go to value-based because you need that too. You need to understand your costs. You need to understand your competition to, to actually execute value-based pricing well because those create uh, barriers or, or the the ends of your ranges uh, in, in what is acceptable pricing. Like we have to understand what our cost to serve is so we don't go out of business if you know profits have a dirty have a dirty uh, uh sort of aura in the among technologists founders i think this is one of the reasons why freemium is so popular because they're just like oh if, like i don't know what to charge money is bad right but like look if you fundamentally believe that you're increasing the amount of value and benefits in the world like that means your company should exist for long enough, and for your company to continue to exist, you need to be profitable. So we need to understand our cost to serve. We need to understand our unit economics. That needs to be set a floor for what our viable uh, pricing should be. Then we get to your, I think your example which is just, co- and there's better and worse ways for for each of these to do like cost based pricing or competition based pricing. Competition based pricing, right, is like at least it gets us to the point that we recognize that, you know. First of all, customers don't care about our costs. So we you know, if we're just sitting there looking at if the CFOs are sitting there looking at a spreadsheet, determining what margin they want to have. Well, that's interesting, but the customer doesn't you know, that rationale doesn't they don't care how big your AWS infrastructure bill is every month, right? Or how much you're paying your engineers. It's irrelevant to them. I've never once bought a piece of software and said, How many engineering hours did it take to build this? Like, I don't care. It's not my problem. Like, I've got problems, I'm hoping you could solve. Like your costs are completely irrelevant to me anyway end rant uh so competition based pricing allows us to get to at least inhabit the same universe as our customers right so we we have a sense of you know what our position is in the market you know what is the unique uh, benefits or that we offer compared to alternatives and yes you can it's it's not the end of the world especially if you're just starting to go sort of you know let's say be inspired by your, your competition's pricing. Um But you have to get that insight in order to understand, you know, where, you know, are you playing in the same ballpark as your, know, are we playing the same game? Right. Cause you're like, <laughs> let's use a sports analogy. Like if, ever, if your customers are playing baseball and then you show up with a hockey stick, they're going to be like, wait, this is, this makes no sense. Right. So uh you, we have to be, at least playing the same game and be in the in the realm of understanding what's going on in our, our uh, customers reality and that's what competition based pricing but then i think the when we get to value based pricing this is really like understanding at a fundamental level what it is that our customers really care about how we uniquely or differentially solve those problems better than other uh, competitors right because i think i think the the lazy competition based pricing is well salesforce is the industry leader. So we, you know, everyone should be at least a 20% discount to them because they're more mature and they're sort of got this this brand. Uh and I think it's fundamentally lazy. I think the other problem is look, pricing is a core growth lever for the business. I don't know any CEO that would outsource their demand gen strategy, their product strategy, their you know, but they're more than willing to just say, oh yeah, well like competitor XYZ, why don't you tell me what I should price? Like and it's it's a major opportunity, right? I don't. They wouldn't do that for any other critical growth avenue of their business, but yet I think it's just a it's fundamentally lazy to just do that, right? Uh, so you, you need that information, but you you shouldn't stop there uh, at the end of the day.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, we've been having some some willingness to pay conversations recently for a, a zero to one product that we're launching at, at Lindio, and it, it's been fascinating to hear the assumptions that that we've made, whether it's myself or others internally about. Um, the value that companies would place on things or how we could model pricing and that then to actually have those conversations and to hear the feedback that we get. And it's, it's two different worlds. So uh, like uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of like assumption mapping and testing assumptions. And uh, I think, I think pricing is one of those big ones where when, when you decide to take the lazy route and just price according to what the competitive landscape is, uh, that, that one assumption could be, could be pretty detrimental. Agreed. Cool. So kind of, kind of diving into willingness to pay uh, a little bit more. So so let's say somebody's listening and they're like okay, I'm going to stop being lazy, you know, I'm I'm going to listen to the advice that, that Dan's giving. I'm actually going to go and have conversations with customers and and actually do that work. I'm going to ask a really big question. What what does that look like when done well? And maybe we can start unpacking that from uh, like, or what's the first step they should take in terms of like trying to assess willingness to pay.
1: Big questions, big questions. This could be like an eight week course. So uh, (laughs) first of all, I will, I will say, I do not think that any of your listeners are lazy. I know product managers, product leaders work incredibly hard. And one thing I will say is that I was incredibly well, lucky slash uh, had idiosyncratic experience that led me to where I am today. It is not a road or a skill set that is taught. So, I do not, uh, if anything, I think the, the CEOs that don't think about their PL in an expanded way are, are, are maybe the ones who uh, need, need a shake. It's not the, the hard earned uh, product leaders uh, that are listening to your show, I'm sure. Um, so, I think fundamentally, you know around like measuring willingness to pay. The biggest problem I see is that for some reason, pricing got slotted in the go-to-market launch plan checklist of product management, or, or or let's say, let's say of company lists. I don't know how this happened, but it's somewhere it's like, all right, we're launching in 30 days. What do we, how do we price and package this thing? I'll say this. You don't have a choice of whether you will have a pricing conversation with your customer. The only decision you get to make is when you will have the conversation. So, you know, let's take this to the extreme. (laughs) Your sales guy is going to have to have a pricing conversation to sell the product. Uh, I I feel bad for that sales guy if that's the first time Willings to Pay or pricing has been brought up. Also, 30 days prior, probably not a good time because the lack of a business case, business thinking around that has been, you know, a a continual uh, rocket by shoe, let's say, you know, ultimately we have to think about any of this research as as a process. And I think philosophically, like asking customers about willingness to pay is complex because, you Customers are often, you know, irrational or uncertain about product performance or even their own preferences, you know, and you know, even at an individual level, customers can have uncertainty about their willingness to pay. Well, this we could price this water bottle anywhere between zero and a trillion dollars. That's probably not where you're starting. You're probably like, well, we could we probably price it somewhere between I don't know five and thirty five dollars, right? So. So determine what you know now. And then I think what it goes lacking in a lot of these discussions, right? And this this goes for any research of any variable you're doing, which is what is the value of additional information? So information itself has a value and it has a cost. And what we want to understand is, is the cost of going and getting more information, you know, is, is that price, is the price of information, is it well worth the value that we're going to get on the other side? Uh, so... And then there's a set of you know relevant measurement instruments that we can use to to go to go get those and then make a decision and act on it. So fundamentally, that's kind of how we think about you know thinking about uh, defining uh, a willingness to pay sort of study. You know the way you sort of go about that is you know once we have sort of a measurement problem in hand, you know, there's a set of you know, qualitative and quantitative primary research. I do not recommend AB testing. I think it lacks foundations of, of good pricing, which good pricing is you know, fair, transparent, and consistent. Uh, generally in B2B, you do not have enough data or visits to your pricing page for statistical significance. Uh, there, it creates a whole bunch of uh, lack of, of trust or loss of trust between prospects. Uh, it makes it really confusing for your sales team because if they're on a prospect, they call with the prospect, they have no idea what the prospect saw. So generally, like, your, your standard like feature AB testing. I do not recommend for, for pricing and packaging changes. Now there's, there's caveats there. Like sometimes there's uh, elements of your pricing page that is fine to, to move around. Like, are oh, we going to put the most expensive option first, for example, or we're going to you know, change the, the, the titles of the, or, or the descriptions of the package names or whatever it might be. Like those are those things you may, are are fine sort of AB test, but your fundamental pricing and packaging uh, is is not well suited to AB. And also, the the problem you run into in subscription and B two B is that it's not a short term experiment. Like you've got to first of all, you got to run the test long enough to get skill significance. Most B two B companies won't have the transaction volume, but then, you know, what is the impact on gross retention on net retention? You might not get that data for. One year or more, depending upon if you're selling annual or multi-year contracts. So, uh, I'll stop there. See if you want to dig in anywhere in particular.
0: No, I, I think I think you're on a roll. I think this is really good. Um, are are there any, I guess, major distinctions as people listen to this and they they hear B two B, they hear SaaS. Or are there there's different contexts that the listeners are in, right? Um, are there any key differentiators or key things that they should be thinking about about differently between the two of like a, like, I don't know, like a SMB to mid-market SaaS play versus like an enterprise um, type of model.
1: That's That's a great question. So, so the question is, is specifically staying within the B2B realm, not like B2B versus B2C?
0: Correct. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's going to be I I it's rare these days to to find a mature company that plays only in one of those spaces, right? There's there's enterprise traditional enterprise companies that are trying to make you know SMB mid-market, you know, offerings, right? To, to adopt more. PLG type uh go-to-market models, right? And then you know, you find even the the lower end sort of PLG companies, if that's where they start, at some point they end they add like an enterprise plan. So you know, I don't think you know, at a certain level of maturity, everyone sort of is playing, you know, everywhere. I think where you you run into different major differences is in we didn't really touch on this, but one of the areas is if, if I'm playing in just like an enterprise space, right. If I'm selling to the fortune 100 companies, right. And they're, they're large enterprises, the differences in, in willings to pay among those, they could almost be segments within themselves because they, they value such different things differently. Um, You know, so that may change, for example, if you're price, you're publishing, your pricing and packaging on your website or how much of it you're publishing uh, versus a, like a, a, high end or not a high end, but a a high volume, uh, like PLG motion, you know, you want to be very transparent with your pricing and packaging because it's very expensive for your sales team to have the same pricing conversation of what your list prices are. Every time they pick up the phone, it's like, first of all, like, I don't want to, if we say our price is $19 per user per month, like I, someone calls and like oh i was hoping it was 1 per user per month well it's like that was not a good use of your sales team's time right and you just increase your customer acquisition cost for someone who wasn't a fit anyway and so you know you may want to have your your pricing and packaging published as a uh, almost like a lead qualification or, or, or funnel qual- qualification measure uh you know it's there's going to be di- there's so many there's so many different differences right like it, it's hard to to pinpoint uh, you know exact uh there, there's probably in an enterprise buying cycle. There's going to be more, more of a buying center, right? So if you think about you know, your end user champion versus the financial buyer versus procurement, uh, your software uh, support lifecycle team, right? If I'm buying, if I'm buying Salesforce, I've got an entire sales operations team that's responsible for making sure that thing runs, creating custom fields, integrating it with other systems in our environment, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so each of those stakeholders. Is going to require you know, different value communication. Um, you know, you're going to have to do different sales enablement to justify your value proposition uh, to each of those those type of buyers. Uh, so, I would say that the enterprise case could get quite uh, complex compared to the more uh, transactional.
0: Yeah, to- totally makes sense, and I think that's great advice because that's that's often debated around: do we show our cost? Do we not? But I think that makes a lot of sense that it it really comes back to unit economics and like what makes sense from like how you leverage the resources that you have. And if you have a, let's say a lower end price point, so to speak, you, you don't want enterprise sales reps selling $20 subscriptions. Yes. That's
1: a very inefficient <laughs> use of their time.
0: Absolutely. Cool, man. This, this has been great so far. I, I know we're, we're getting close to time, but I do want to circle back to something that the listeners have probably been listening to the, the entire podcast, just to get to that one point you brought up at the very beginning of why should you not do freemium? Because there's so there's so much like quote unquote data out there around like how freemium companies do so much better in the SaaS world and PLG companies do so much better. And I feel like I feel like this could be like a hotly debated topic amongst like you and a couple other pricing pros that, that I've listened to. But I would love your perspective on this. Of where have you seen? And and maybe it's, it's too aggressive to say freemium sucks in all cases. And maybe you might disagree with that, but I would just love your perspective on where you've seen premium fail and uh, like your general perspective on freemium as a whole.
1: Oh man. So yeah, this could, this would be a a bloody knuckle debate with a few (laughs) folks I I could come to mind. Look, I think fundamentally the better answer anytime. So, so I think the tactical advice for your product leader listeners is anytime someone mentions freemium, the better answer almost always is a free trial. Okay. So forever free is, or freemium is a monetization model. And I want to be very clear on what we're thinking about. So, because um, freemium is, you know, free and then upgrade to a premium package Uh, it is not so some people will be like oh well facebook is freemium it's like no facebook is a two-sided network uh their advertisers are are paying the bills right you're the product uh there's uh ad supported models like I, i was a big fan of uh use duolingo a ton right and they have free users they have an ad supported model, right? That's not freemium. That's, that's ad supported. So freemium is this like, no, we just have a bunch of free customers uh, or free users. I make that distinction. When we're talking about freemium. So if they're not paying you, they are users. If they're paying you, they are customers. Generally, again, it's better to have a 14 to 30 day free trial instead of freemium. It's a bad idea, except in a few rare cases. Okay. Pareto's rule. of what you build is 80% of the value. If you start off as a technology company being like, well, we're going to give away this features and you built the, and you did your job as product leaders and you built the most important things first, congratulations. You just gave away 80% of the perpetual value of your product off the bat in a freemium version. And now you're going to spend the rest of your career at that company trying to build something else that gets people to, to upgrade and pay. So I think that's, that's first. I think it's there's an argument I think it's really disingenuous around there's an illusory illusory improvement to the CAC metric. So CAC is your customer acquisition cost and I think where the data that you've mentioned I've seen a bunch of data uh unfortunately we're not in a um academic peer-reviewed study. You got to publish your data sets and your Python notebooks to show us how you arrive at your answers. A lot of these a lot of these uh People are pontificating based upon uh, what they were told by a company. And then we put it into a blog post, right? And it's very hard to drive, you know, correlation versus causation. Like, were they successful because they had freemium? What was the counterfactual? Were they able to effectively split, you know, and run a, just a free trial version versus freemium? And like, they found that one was more successful. Where's their data? Like, I've never seen that. I've looked for it. Believe me, I would love to have it. Uh, I would love yeah. for someone to come and prove me wrong on that. Um, but you know, CAC may look better, but that's because companies don't usually treat R and D investment as a marketing expense. So effectively, what you've done is, you know, because because the the formula for customer acquisition cost, CAC, is sales and marketing expense divided by the number of customers required. R and D isn't in that calculation. So now what you've done is said we're gonna we're gonna take all of these engineers who are in the R and D the P and L, and we're gonna effectively make them marketing but you didn't actually move those numbers over into the CAC. So of course it's going to make CAC look better. Like it's just, it's just fun with math. Like you've just, you've done an Enron. Well, they'll just bury the costs over in the shell company. Like it's just, it's, it's silly. Look, I think it, it caused a bunch of problems internally. It's, it's fundamentally really difficult to move customers from free. You run into what is called the penny gap. You might as well. So the penny gap is if I go from free to one cent, that's an infinite increase in price. Anyone who's gone through math, I'm not going to do the derivation here, but that's (laughs) check the math textbooks. I'm pretty sure that's correct. So it's just as challenging to move someone from free as it is from a net new. Uh, You know, the illusion is that you'll have. First of all, it requires a massive market to work. So we're talking on Zoom right now, right? COVID happened. Uh, Zoom has is one of these examples that actually works, but in general, right? It has network effects. And also everyone during COVID could be a customer. So like it made sense for them to have freemium, but like they have a massive TAM and a massive number of, of possible accounts. Best in class premium companies, they can about... One to three percent of their customers actually go to paid. So, you know, for most B two B companies, they don't have millions or billions of potential uh, clients like in their in their TAM. And so, you know, and the this illusion even that the other ninety nine percent of the free users are going to become customers it constantly tempts executives. Look, I give all you know, benefit of the doubt to the the growth teams and CMOs out there. Like they have a really hard job. And so it's, there's this mirage of like, look at all these users. Like if only we could build this one more thing that they're all saying we should use, but it's a, it's absolutely, that. it's a mirage. And so it, it causes a lot of conversations internally that are, are dysfunctional, not helpful. Uh, you end up investing a lot of effort, uh, into it, uh, it requires a, Basically, adds a momentum tax on every single feature that you build. Um, so, when does it work? It requires a colossal market, you know, a specific competitive environment where, like, the dominant player gives away a, or their product or bundles it with other offerings. This, I think, this was the you know when I was doing this research originally back in you know twenty eleven, uh, Evernote was the big. 300, 800 pound gorilla in the free, you know, ever believe me, I read all the blog posts back then about like Evernote's the champion. Look at all their stuff with doing your freemium. Well, Look, they were up against Microsoft and Microsoft OneNote, which was the same exact product, except you got it for free with, with the Microsoft office suite. So they were competing against free. Like if you're competing effectively free, right. And, and look, Slack had to run into the arms of Salesforce because Microsoft did the same thing with Microsoft teams where they bundled it into the, you know, the enterprise and all of a sudden Slack's like, well, we got no more growth. Right. So, so let's, let's run it, you know, and everyone talks about Slack's like amazing freebie strategy. It's like, yeah, no, it works until Microsoft enters your space. Right? Um or only Microsoft enters your space. We should say, you know, some of the some of the developer focused products, like you know, if a product is in has to be used in dev staging by, by teams like long before using production, instead of like look, those aren't viable leads. Like the sales guys giving free trial extensions every you know seven to fourteen days. It's like, hey, man, like, we'll just use this thing and whatever. I can't use whatever you're giving me in production. It would never like our system would crash and like it's too like I would never work, try to work around using your free offering in production because it just everything would, would fail. So there's a couple of situations where it works like at Slack, like there's a built in community aspect where it actually is required for like everyone you almost have this like more two-sided marketplace cold start problem with a with slack where everyone has to jump into the tool for it to be effectively useful it's not useful if everyone's not collaborating off the bat and so it made sense in the, that case to really lower the the activation energy um but but yes generally if you come up against uh freemium the better answer is a 14 to 30 day free trial for sure
0: cold start problem is a good book by the way but uh i agree it's it's been something where like outside of my day job i have kind of Uh, side products that I've been building and it's it's been something I've been spinning my wheels on and experimenting with do we just make it a a paywall to get in do we like how much do we give if they come in for free and then try to upgrade so it it, but as I think through some of the examples that you gave both kind of inside stuff that I'm doing and in my day job it's like okay no that that definitely makes sense and I think we've seen it right it's these companies get all kind of praise because they grow their user base because of freemium. And it's like, Oh, now their valuation is so high because sure they should figure out how to monetize the millions of users they have now. And it's like crickets on monetization. And then and unless they can continue to be arbitrarily propped up by VC money, like you said earlier, if you can't make money, you can't serve any customers cause you run out of business.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or you have to go run into the arms of of a, of an acquirer. <laughs> uh, so
0: exactly. And, and hope that they don't figure out that you don't know how to monetize the product either. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Well, Dan, th- this has been awesome, man. I know uh, we could probably go another hour or more hours on a lot of these topics, but uh, there was there was so much gold to take away from this, and I, I really appreciate you joining. But but before we go, um, for the users who are listening and are like, man, Dan's really smart about this pricing stuff, and I have questions, uh, Where where could they find you or reach out to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh I appreciate you having me on John and uh you know, I I don't want to make this sound like I, you know, got all this handed down on stone tablets. I made a lot of mistakes <laughs> along the way. So, as I said before, you know, there's not a, a real easy way to learn this. So, I try to blog fairly regularly on my website producttranquility.com all one word and, you know, help help demystify this world for others. Um so folks can can find me there or just ways to contact me through my website or reach out to me at Dan Balkowski on LinkedIn. And just let me know that you heard me on the podcast so I could separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll, I'll put all those, all those links in the show notes. And uh, I, again, I appreciate your time. This was awesome.
1: Thank you so much.